dreaming of eternal tranquility, Winsy quaffs the elixir of immortality. But soon, his tranquility turns to torture. Mary Shelley, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to this vintage episode of the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Two vintage episodes are released each week, on Mondays and Wednesdays, so be sure to check your feed regularly. New episodes will be available every Friday. Please help us to keep the vintage episodes coming by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com and becoming a supporter. Thank you so much. Today's story was commissioned in 1883 for The Keepsake, a literary annual which combined short fiction, poetry, and engraved artwork. The Mortal Immortal is an example of a Godwinian confessional narrative, a technique developed by Mary's father, William Godwin, in his novel St. Leon. Godwin's novel features a tragic, immortal protagonist, possessed of exceptional powers, but unable to use them well. The narrative technique and the theme of exploring the nature of life and immortality are evident in many of Shelley's writings, including the short story Transformation and, of course, Frankenstein. And now, The Mortal Immortal by Mary Shelley. July 16th, 1833. This is a memorable anniversary for me. On it, I complete my 323rd year. The Wandering Jew? <laughs> Certainly not. More than 18 centuries have passed over his head. In comparison with him, I am a very young immortal. Am I then immortal? This is a question which I have asked myself by day and night for now... Three hundred and three years, and yet I cannot answer it. I detected a gray hair amidst my brown locks this very day. That surely signifies decay. Yet it may have remained concealed there for three hundred years. Some persons have become entirely white-headed before twenty years of age. I will tell my story, and my reader shall judge for me. I will tell my story and so contrive to pass some few hours of a long eternity, become so wearisome to me. Forever! Can it be to live forever? I have heard of enchantments, in which the victims were plunged into a deep sleep to wake after a hundred years as fresh as ever. I have heard of the seven sleepers, thus to be immortal would not be so burdensome. But, oh! The weight of never-ending time. The tedious passage of the still succeeding hours. How happy was the fabled Norjahad! But to my task. All the world has heard of Cornelius Agrippa. His memory is as immortal as his arts have made me. All the world has also heard of his scholar, who, unawares, raised the foul fiend during his master's absence and was destroyed by him. The report, true or false, of his accident was attended with many inconveniences to the renowned philosopher, 
all his scholars at once deserted him. His servants disappeared. He had no one near him to put coals on his ever-burning fires while he slept, or to attend to the changeful colors of his medicines while he studied. Experiment after experiment failed, because one pair of hands was insufficient to complete them. The dark spirits laughed at him for not being able to retain a single mortal in his service. I was then very young, very poor, and very much in love. I had been for about a year the pupil of Cornelius, though I was absent when this accident took place. On my return, my friends implored me not to return to the alchemist's abode. I trembled as I listened to the dire tale they told. I required no second warning, and when Cornelius came and offered me a purse of gold if I would remain under his roof, I felt as if Satan himself tempted me. My teeth chattered. My hair stood on end. I ran off as fast as my trembling knees would permit. My failing steps were directed whither, for two years, they had every evening been attracted. A gently bubbling spring of pure living water, beside which lingered a dark-haired girl, whose beaming eyes were fixed on the path I was accustomed each night to tread. I cannot remember the hour when I did not love Bertha. We had been neighbors and playmates from infancy. Her parents, like mine, were of humble life, yet respectable. Our attachment had been a source of pleasure to them. In an evil hour, a malignant fever carried off both her father and mother, and Bertha became an orphan. She would have found a home beneath my paternal roof, but unfortunately, the old lady of the near castle, rich, childless, and solitary, declared her intention to adopt her. Henceforth, Bertha was clad in silk, inhabited a marble palace, and was looked on as being highly favored by fortune. But in her new situation, among her new associates, Bertha remained true to the friend of her humbler days. She often visited the cottage of my father, and when forbidden to go thither, she would stray towards the neighboring wood and meet me beside its shady fountain. She often declared that she owed no duty to her new protectress equal in sanctity to that which bound us. Yet still I was too poor to marry, and she grew weary of being tormented on my account. She had a haughty but an impatient spirit, and grew angry at the obstacle that prevented our union. We met now after an absence, and she had been sorely beset while I was away. She complained bitterly, and almost reproached me for being poor. I replied hastily, I am honest if I am poor. Were I not, I might soon become rich. This exclamation produced a thousand questions. I feared to shock her by owning the truth, but she drew it from me. And then, casting a look of disdain on me, she said, You pretend to love, and you fear to face the devil for my sake. I protested that I had only dreaded to offend her, while she dwelt on the magnitude of the reward that I should receive. Thus encouraged, shamed by her, led on by love and hope, laughing at my later fears, with quick steps and a light heart I returned to accept the offers of the alchemist, and was instantly installed in my office. A year passed away. I became possessed of no insignificant sum of money. 
custom had banished my fears. In spite of the most painful vigilance, I had never detected the trace of a cloven foot, nor was the studious silence of our abode ever disturbed by demonic howls. I still continued my stolen interviews with Bertha, and hope dawned on me. Hope, but not perfect joy, for Bertha fancied that love and security were enemies, and her pleasure was to divide them in my bosom. Though true of heart, she was something of a coquette in manner. I was jealous as a Turk. She slighted me in a thousand ways, yet would never acknowledge herself to be in the wrong. She would drive me mad with anger, and then force me to beg her pardon. Sometimes she fancied that I was not sufficiently submissive. And then she had some story of a rival, favored by her protectress. She was surrounded by silk-clad youths, the rich and gay. What chance had a sad-robed scholar of Cornelius compared with these? On one occasion, the philosopher made such large demands upon my time that I was unable to meet her as I was wont. He was engaged in some mighty work, and I was forced to remain day and night feeding his furnaces and watching his chemical preparations. Bertha waited for me in vain at the fountain. Her haughty spirit fired at this neglect, and when at last I stole out during a few short minutes allotted to me for slumber, and hoped to be consoled by her, she received me with disdain, dismissed me in scorn, and vowed that any man should possess her hand rather than he who could not be in two places at once for her sake. She would be revenged. And truly she was. In my dingy retreat, I heard that she had been hunting, attended by... In my dingy retreat, I heard that she had been hunting, attended by Albert Hoffer. Albert Hoffer was favoured by her protectress, and the three passed in cavalcade before my smoky window. Methought that they mentioned my name. It was followed by a laugh of derision as her dark eyes glanced contemptuously towards my abode. Jealousy, with all its venom and all its misery, entered my breast. Now I shed a torrent of tears to think that I should never call her mine. And anon I imprecated a thousand curses on her inconsistency. Yet, still I must stir the fires of the alchemist, still attend on the changes of his unintelligible medicines. Cornelius had watched for three days and three nights, nor closed his eyes. The progress of his alembics was slower than he had expected. In spite of his anxiety, sleep waited upon his eyelids. Again and again he threw off drowsiness with more than human energy. Again and again it stole away his senses. He eyed his crucibles wistfully. Not ready yet, he murmured. Will another night pass before the work is accomplished? Winsy, you are vigilant, you are faithful, you have slept, my boy, you slept last night. Look at that glass vessel. The liquid it contains is of a soft rose color. The moment it begins to change hue, awaken me. Till then I may close my eyes. First it will turn white, and then emit gold flashes, but wait not till then. When the rose color fades, rouse me. I scarcely heard the last words, muttered as they were in sleep. Even then he did not quite yield to nature. 
Rinzi, my boy, he again said, and do not touch the vessel. Do not put it to your lips. It is a filter, a filter to cure love. You would not cease to love your Bertha. Beware to drink. And he slept. His venerable head sunk on his breast, and I scarce heard his regular breathing. For a few minutes I watched the vessel. The rosy hue of the liquid remained unchanged. Then my thoughts wandered. They visited the fountain, and dwelt on a thousand charming scenes never to be renewed. Never. Serpents and adders were in my heart as the word never half formed itself on my lips. False girl, false and cruel. Nevermore would she smile on me as that evening she smiled on Albert. Worthless, detested woman. I would not remain unrevenged. She should see Albert expire at her feet. She should die beneath my vengeance. She had smiled in disdain and triumph. She knew my wretchedness and her power. Yet what power had she? The power of exciting my hate? My utter scorn? My... Oh. Oh. All but indifference. Could I attain that? Could I regard her with careless eyes, transferring my rejected love to one fairer and more true? That were indeed a victory. A bright flash darted before my eyes. I had forgotten the medicine of the adept. I gazed on it in wonder. Flashes of admirable beauty, more bright than those which the diamond emits when the sun's rays are on it, glanced from the surface of the liquid. And odour... The most fragrant and grateful stole over my sense. The vessel seemed one globe of living radiance, lovely to the eye and most inviting to the taste. The first thought, instinctively inspired by the grocer's sense, was, I will, I must drink. I raised the vessel to my lips. It will cure me of love, of torture. Already I had quaffed half of the most delicious liquor ever tasted by the palate of man when the philosopher stirred. I started. I dropped the glass. The fluid flamed and glanced along the floor, while I felt Cornelius's grip at my throat as he shrieked aloud, Wretch! You have destroyed the labor of my life! The philosopher was totally unaware that I had drunk any portion of his drug. His idea was, and I give a tacit assent to it, that I had raised the vessel from curiosity, and that, frightened at its brightness, and the flashes of intense light it gave forth, I had let it fall. I never undeceived him. The fire of the medicine was quenched. The fragrance died away. He grew calm, as a philosopher should under the heaviest trials, and dismissed me to rest. I will not attempt to describe the sleep of glory and bliss which bathed my soul in paradise during the remaining hours of that memorable night. Words would be faint and shallow types of my enjoyment, or of the gladness that possessed my bosom when I woke. I trod air. My thoughts were in heaven. Earth appeared heaven, and my inheritance upon it was to be one trance of delight. This is to be cured of love, I thought. I will see Bertha this day, 
and she will find her lover cold and regardless, too happy to be disdainful, yet how utterly indifferent to her. And the hours danced away. The philosopher, secure that he had once succeeded, and believing that he might again, began to concoct the same medicine once more. He was shut up with his books and drugs, and I had a holiday. I dressed myself with care. I looked in an old but polished shield which served me for a mirror. He thought my good looks had wonderfully improved. I hurried beyond the precincts of the town, joy in my soul, the beauty of heaven and earth around me. I turned my steps toward the castle. I could look on its lofty turrets with lightness of heart, for I was cured of love. My Bertha saw me afar off as I came up the avenue. I know not what sudden impulse animated her bosom, but at the sight she sprung with a light fawn-like bound down the marble steps and was hastening towards me. But I had been perceived by another person, the old high-born hag, who had called herself her protectress and was her tyrant, had seen me also. She hobbled, panting, up the terrace. A page, as ugly as herself, held up her train and fanned her as she hurried along, and stopped my fair girl with a, How now, my bold mistress, whither so fast? Back to your cage, hawks are abroad. Bertha clasped her hands. Her eyes were still bent on my approaching figure. I saw the contest. How I abhorred the old crone who checked the kind impulses of my Bertha's softening heart. Hitherto, respect for her rank had caused me to avoid the lady of the castle, and now I disdained such trivial considerations. I was cured of love, and lifted above all human fears. I hastened forwards, and soon reached the terrace. How lovely Bertha looked, her eyes flashing fire, her cheeks glowing with impatience and anger. She was a thousand times more graceful and charming than ever. I no longer loved. Oh, no. I adored, worshipped, idolized her. She had that morning been persecuted, with more than usual vehemence, to consent to an immediate marriage with my rival. She was reproached with the encouragement that she had shown him. She was threatened with being turned out of doors with disgrace and shame. Her proud spirit rose in arms at the threat, but when she remembered the scorn that she had heaped upon me, and how, perhaps, she had thus lost one whom she now regarded as her only friend, she wept with remorse and rage. At that moment I appeared. Oh, Winsy, she exclaimed, take me to your mother's cot. Swiftly let me leave the detested luxuries and wretchedness of this noble dwelling. Take me to poverty and happiness. I clasped her in my arms with transport. The old dame was speechless with fury, and broke into invective only when we were far on the road to my natal cottage. My mother received the fair fugitive, escaped from a gilt cage to nature and liberty with tenderness and joy. My father, who loved her, welcomed her heartily. It was a day of rejoicing, which did not need the addition of the celestial potion of the alchemist to steep me in delight. Soon after this eventful day I became the husband of Bertha. I ceased to be the scholar of Cornelius, but I continued his friend. I always felt grateful to him for having, unaware, procured me that delicious draught of a divine elixir, which, 
instead of curing me of love, sad cure, solitary and joyless remedy for evils which seem blessings to the memory, had inspired me with courage and resolution, thus winning for me the inestimable treasure in my Bertha. I often called to mind that period of trance-like inebriation with wonder. The drink of Cornelius had not fulfilled the task for which he affirmed that it had been prepared, but its effects were more potent and blissful than words can express. They had faded by degrees, yet they lingered long and painted life in hues of splendor. Bertha often wondered at my lightness of heart and unaccustomed gaiety, for before I had been rather serious, or even sad in my disposition. She loved me the better for my cheerful temper, and our days were winged by joy. Five years afterwards, I was suddenly summoned to the bedside of the dying Cornelius. He had sent for me in haste, conjuring my instant presence. I found him stretched on his pallet, enfeebled, even to death, all of life that yet remained, animated his piercing eyes, and they were fixed on a glass vessel full of rosette liquid. Behold, he said in a broken and inward voice, the vanity of human wishes. A second time my hopes are about to be crowned. A second time they are destroyed. Look at that liquor. You may remember five years ago I had prepared the same, with the same success, then, as now, my thirsting lips expected to taste the immortal elixir. You dashed it from me, and at present it is too late. He spoke with difficulty and fell back on his pillow. I cannot help saying, how, revered master, can a cure for love restore you to life? A faint smile gleamed across his face as I listened earnestly to his scarcely intelligible answer. A cure for love and for all things, the elixir of immortality. <laughs> if now I might drink, I should live forever. As he spoke, a golden flash gleamed from the liquid. A well-remembered fragrance stole over the air. He raised himself. All weak as he was, strength seemed miraculously to re-enter his frame. He stretched forth his hand. A loud explosion startled me. A ray of fire shot up from the elixir, and the glass vessel which contained it was shivered to atoms. <laughs> This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this vintage episode of The Mortal Immortal by Mary Shelley. We've got more classic fiction by Agatha Christie, E.M. Forster, Charles Dickens, and others at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. Click on over and check it out. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <music>